Well, um, let's just jump right in. <laughs> so partiality is our, our subject here, partiality in the gospel. And partiality can take on many different forms, specifically in our text, and we'll talk more about this as we move along, can take on the form of racism, which is a prevalent sin uh, in our country and world ever since, ever since sin first entered the world has been a problem uh, for humanity. Over the last two years uh, here, I personally have shared with you uh, some highlights from readings that I have done. Um, I love biographies. I love church history um, of guys like John Newton and William Wilberforce, whose biographies are there in the bookstore. Um, how they battled uh, what was the British slave trading industry in the early 19th century. That battle was slowly won. It took about 60 years to actually win that battle, a long, hard, hard battle for that. It even had an even slower trickle-down trickle down effect uh, to us here in America. Let's not forget, um, many of you actually lived this time, but let's not forget that not even 60 years ago, um, before the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and 68, before those were passed, laws uh, were in place to justify partiality, to justify racism in parts of our country. Uh, just based on the color of skin alone, getting, um, we were, we, people were going to different schools, people were taking different entrances to theaters, people were sitting in different sections of buses, people were drinking from different water fountains just over 60 plus years ago. Having grown up in Southern Virginia myself, um, as many of you know my story, I didn't grow up in the church, definitely grew up with, with a dad who loved Jesus, and, uh, and so I, um, I even experienced this as a kid, um, even on the playground, right, experienced this, this is early 80s. I remember uh, my dad came to school. I found this out many years later. didn't know why it happened at the time. But I remember um, at, at the playground, my new best friend, Maurice, who was, was African-American, and, um, and we all of a sudden were split up on the playground. He had to go to one side, and I had to go to the other, and uh, couldn't play together anymore. had no idea why. Well, I found out it's because my dad came to school and made it a point to make sure that, that his son was not playing with someone who was black, right? So this was... This is pretty applicable to me, all right? This is, this is home. This is, uh, this is early 80s, all right? This is not too far removed from that. Even before all of this took place, even before our modern um, era, we find early 20th century, there were ideas. They were um, going along. There were scientific, quote-unquote, I'll use air quotes for this, ideas uh, regarding things like social Darwinism, which was basically the theory of the survival of the fittest applied to social structures, um, you had uh, eugenics, which was a, a, which is still startling to me, was a literal degree you could get in college that equipped you uh, to apply this to society. Um, let's not forget that um, in light of all of this, we, that led to racial uh, kind of elitism and the attempt to remove entire races of people, like what happened with the Jewish people during the Holocaust. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, I was in Los Angeles. I got to visit the, the Holocaust Museum. It took about three or four hours for me to walk through, um, room by room, page by page, uh, just to take that all in. And this is not shocking probably to you, but it is important you know that it wasn't just one mastermind person scheming this whole thing. There was a mass amount of leadership and input of people that believed this very thing, right? That there was an elite group of people and there was a lesser group of people based on race. Um, that would uh, result in these religious beliefs that they had, that result in the, the, the attempt to eliminate them. Then you think of all the, the uh, genocides, attempted genocides even, in places like Bosnia, uh, Rwanda, Cambodia, Sudan, China even today, just to name a few. Right? Fast forward to today, our sins of partiality, favoritism, racism run deep in our country and our world. Uh, to think we're past these, to think that we're above these, to think that we're better than these is what, what my favorite writers would call, C.S. Lewis would call, chronological snobbery. And that's the idea that basically we just think we're better because we're further along in history. And we're not. We're still cut from the same cloth. We still have the same sin nature, right? Um, we, have the same, we have the same need for grace. So when we talk about partiality, what, what exactly is that? Well, let me just give you a dictionary definition and we'll work off that. Dictionary definition defines it as unfair bias in favor of one thing or person compared with another, also known as favoritism. Or another definition was favorable prejudice or favorable bias. In essence, it's to favor one group or person over another for the sake of one's own advantage, one's own advancement, one's own comfort. And that favoring can be based not just on race, it can be based on all kinds of things, right? It's just a way that I can advantage myself as a person with another group over another group, uh, whatever those differences may be. 
So as we dive into our text uh, today, uh, we'll see this sin of partiality, this sin of racism lived out in the life, and this is the shocking part, lived out in the life of one of the most prominent early leaders of the church. If you're not familiar with the Bible very much, you may still know the name Peter, okay? He was, he was one of the leaders of the early church. And what's most interesting is that what we find him doing, and this is really, really important for us because we all have kind of blinders on to our own sin many times, is that he didn't do these things that we're about to talk about here in the text. I don't believe, and I don't think the text even uh, indicates this, that he did this out of any sort of deliberate hatred or some deliberate motivation to try to hurt people. Right? I don't think there was a deliberate nature to it. Um, but rather it is done, as we'll find out, out of fear. It's done out of peer pressure in some ways. And really, as Paul will confront him on it, a lack of belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who said perfect love casts out fear, right? So if we're sitting here today and we're thinking, uh, you know, I don't struggle with partiality. I'm not partial at all. Um, I don't struggle with favoritism at all. I don't struggle with racism at all. I don't have any bias whatsoever. Then we're probably blind. We're probably blind. If Peter can fall prey to this, my friends, let's not think that we're above that, okay? If the guy in the early church who was the leader of the disciples who, who, can, who can fall into this trap, along with Barnabas, as we'll read as well, or, you know, along with a whole host of other Christians at the time, let's not think that we're above that. So whether you're, you find yourself today a Christian or not, we are partial people, and we need to repent of that, and we need the gospel, right? And so this is what we're gonna look at. We're just gonna look at the, the story in four different kind of parts here. We're gonna look at the sin itself. We're gonna look at the, the heart, kind of the motivation, like what's going on that kind of makes this rise to the top. We're going to look at the approach of how to deal with it, uh, as Paul deals with it, and then the hope that is in the gospel, okay? Number one, the sin here, verses 12 and 13. Uh, let's set the context. We find Paul. He is in the uh, city of Antioch. Now, Antioch uh, is, uh, at that time, is a very diverse uh, kind of city. It was actually the third largest city in the world at the time. It was known as uh, the Rome of the East, okay? So just imagine a very large city. It was um, it was over half a million people that called it home at the time, and 65,000 of those is, is said to be at least Jewish people in that group, right? So a large amount of them as well. It was so diverse, matter of fact, Acts will tell us that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians in the city. If you ever wonder where that phrase came from, like, we're called Christians, but where did that come from? This is when they were first labeled Christians, little Christs, in Antioch in the city. You say, why, why were they labeled that way? Because what was happening before that, they were being called things like um, Galileans, for example, was one of the phrases that people would call them. You're like, why did they call them Galileans? Well, they called them Galileans because that was where Jesus was from, right? He was the Jesus. He was in Galilee a lot, around the Sea of Galilee. And so they just, they just considered Christianity, or they call it Christianity, sorry. They considered these new followers of Jesus some kind of uh, break-off, or we call it a sect, S-E-C-T, um, of the Jewish religion, right? So they considered them still very Jewish. Most of the followers of this Jesus were very Jewish. But in Antioch, that wasn't the case. In Antioch, the gospel, as we saw in Acts, started to spread to all kinds of other people. In the Bible, that word is called Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And it was going everywhere. And so here, they began to change the name. The world began to call them differently because we see, okay, this, this is not a Jewish religion, right? This is something going way beyond Judaism here. This is something completely new, okay? So that's where, uh, where that came from. And so we find um, here that Paul shows up uh, in Antioch, and something strange is happening with Peter. So look at verse 12. For before certain men came from James, James was the kind of the lead pastor of the Jerusalem church, the first church. This church was the second church in Antioch, okay? So the first church of Jerusalem um, was there, headed by uh, the lead pastor there would have been James. It says certain men came from that church. They weren't necessarily members of that church. They were just people that were visiting that church. It was a new thing in town. People were starting to show up. So people came down, it says, from James. He was eating with the Gentiles, speaking of Peter. But when they came, uh, when they, when, when they came he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, that seems very strange and probably something you should fear, the circumcision party. I read that every time I go, I'd be terrified of that party. Can you imagine? Um, yeah, you got, you're signing up for a political party, you're like, okay, Republicans, we got Democrats over here, we got the Green, we have whatever else party's going on, and we have the circumcision party. Who wants to sign up? You're like, he's not getting any registered voters for that group. But 
Sorry, total side note. That's just, when I read that, that's immediately what I think, going, yeah, I'd fear them too. Um, verse 13, uh, let's move on. And, uh, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Peter was eating a meal with the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And then he decided to leave the table and join the table of the Jews. I told you before, I, every time I read the story, I immediately go back to junior high school where, you know, you got the cool kids at the table and the uncool kids at the other table. And basically, Peter's eating with the uncool kids and the cool kids show up at the table next door and he gets his food, his tray, and he moves over to sit with the cool kids, right? That, that's kind of like what's happening here. If you were part of that junior high kind of world, you know what I'm talking about. And so, uh, so this is him. He ditches the, the crowd he was with, the Gentiles, to go sit with this Jewish people. You say, but what's the big deal with eating a meal? Like, what's so wrong with switching seats? Is that, was that wrong for him to do, just to get up and take another seat? Was there some sin in doing that? Like, these are his friends. Why can't he go sit with these friends? Like, what's wrong with what is happening? Understand back then that there was what we call table fellowship or eating a meal with someone. It's important today. We, we, have, we build relationships around a meal, right? That's an, an important element. We have, you know, you have Thanksgiving or Christmas, when the family all comes together, there's a sense of connection, right, with that. We still feel that. It, amplify that by 100 times to the Jewish culture. To eat with someone was tremendously important. Um, in that culture especially, it, was a, it told you what group you belonged to. Uh, it puts you in a certain class based on who you ate with. Uh, in the Jewish mind, in, in the Jewish uh, circle, it meant that fellowship before God, right? It meant uh, if you ate with someone different, then you were endorsing that they were also God's child. So to eat with someone who is non-Jewish was pretty risky. Matter of fact, most of them wouldn't do it. Um, because to go eat with them is actually to endorse them and to bring them into and say, hey, they are also God's child here. Okay? So, um, so that, was, that was different for them. It was a means of acceptance and a high religious Jew, Jewish people actually forbid eating with Gentiles at all. You couldn't go to their house. You couldn't eat a meal with them, right? You separate yourself from them. If you go into their land, you come, when you come out of their land, you kick the dust off your feet because you don't want anything to do with the tainted kind of Gentile world. And so, so this was what was happening. And it was all based on race. It was all, um, all based on that. And so here we have Peter, a Jewish Christian, eating with Gentile Christians when, I'll say Jewish Christians, in air quotes here, um, from Jerusalem, from the first church there, who are recovering Pharisees probably in some way, show up giving Peter kind of the evil eye like your mom gave you when you were a kid and you did something wrong in public, right? So this group sits at the table. They see Peter over there. They kind of give him the, you know, use this, what is it? It's like a little bit of a head tilt, right? The mom look and you kind of have squint and you... You don't have to say anything. You know exactly what's going on when you're in trouble in public. Mom gives you that look. That's the look. This group has given Peter the look, and he's like, oh, no. Gets his tray, and he heads over to their table because he needs to be with them. All right? So what's going on. So, um, so, that, so that's what's happening there. They, they felt that even as Christians, even though they, were, they may have been Christians, may not have been, they were very new. Christian or not, you, you still got to separate here. It's still, still got to be separate. These guys from Jerusalem, appearance to them was still everything here. How could Peter eat with Gentiles who were clearly not eating a kosher meal in their world, right? I mean, I know it sounded strange to you, but to them, that was just something completely startling. These Gentile Christians, they ate the wrong foods. They prepared food the wrong way. Matter of fact, before they even came to Jesus, they were offering this food to idols and false gods. And so for the Jewish world, it's like, okay, you like Jesus, that's great, but I'm still not eating with you, right? I'm still, we're, we're still gonna stay separated. And this was a huge deal in the early church. Go read Ephesians 2, and you'll find Paul talk a lot about how this gospel actually brought these two groups together when nothing else in the world would have, could have possibly done that. So these Jewish Christian crowd um, that shows up from Jerusalem, they kept a list of things people had to do to be good Christians, you can be a Christian, but you want to be a good one, you got these rules to keep, okay? And so many times uh, it's very possible that kind of the penny of the gospel just hasn't dropped yet for them. They talked of Jesus, they talked of gospel, but it hadn't quite clicked with them. Um, they were probably still unbelievers, maybe using Jesus lingo. And so the idea of Gentiles, even Gentile Christians, repulsed them in many ways. We talked about last week, it wasn't Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It was Jesus plus reputation for them equals everything. You still got to associate with the right people. Their heart hadn't changed. 
they had, they had converted in some ways from one performance-based narrative to another. One performance-based narrative of keeping the Jewish laws to now I'm going to now move over and I'm going to keep the same heart, the same performance-based narrative, and I'm going to keep Christian laws now. You see, it, it, nothing changed in their heart. They still had the same, they just changed the rules. Oh, I've got different rules to keep now. Okay, all right, I, I'll keep new rules. Um, and it still was not a love for Jesus that was motivating them. And so this is the same reaction, by the way, if you go read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John there, the first four books of the New Testament, where the religious leaders um, got mad at Jesus for. Remember, there was quite a few stories about that, where Jesus would go to a tax collector's home, for example. They weren't liked at all. We've talked about them before. Um, Matthew was one of those tax collectors, um, but the Jews didn't like them because they viewed them as sellouts, because a lot of the tax collectors were Jewish, collecting taxes for Rome, and that just didn't go over well, right? So they didn't like them. And not only would Jesus go to their homes to eat with them, which was forbidden by the Jewish rules that they made, but he would go and there would be people like prostitutes would come, right? I mean, it was like, how in the world can he eat with them? And they would get very upset about the people that Jesus ate with. Matter of fact, I remember one commentator in the book of Luke said, said that Jesus basically got himself killed for who he ate with. I mean, they, 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 he's always going to a meal or from a meal throughout the Gospel of Luke, and one of the driving motivators of why they killed him was because of who he ate with, right? How could you associate with these kinds of people? Matter of fact, uh, Luke 15, 1 through 2, it says here, now the tax collectors and sinners, they just lumped them all into one big category, were all drawing near to him, and that's speaking of Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes, that's the religious leaders, they grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. How could he, right? And again, it may sound foreign to you, but that is, that is what was going on in the culture and why this text in Galatians is so, so important and why it's happening, because it was also happening to Jesus, the same thing. And Jesus would do this. He would, do, he would eat with them to say that one's true standing before God could not be measured in terms of obedience to laws. Or a far greater eternal significance was one rela one's relationship to God through Jesus, right? That was what was important, um, and here's what is amazing about this story in Galatians. Think about this. Peter was here in Luke 15. <laughs> Peter was with Jesus eating at the table with the tax collectors and the sinners, right, and the prostitutes. He, he, was, he was at the table. He, he was seeing Jesus do this very thing. Um, he saw that it was not a sin to eat with people different from you, to accept people into your life that maybe don't believe the same as you. And yet, we find him here doing the exact opposite of that. But I don't believe, based on the language of the text, that this is the way it was. Um, matter of fact, the idea of the language is that Peter pioneered this eating together of Jewish and Gentile Christians. Like, he was one of the people who started it. He was one of the people that, hey, we're, we're supposed to be doing this. Um, he had experienced the freedom of the gospel as a, as a Jewish man and was crossing ethnic and religious barriers to eat with Gentiles. And he was eating with them. And the habit of eating with them is kind of the idea of the language. Remember back in Acts, uh, a couple months ago, Acts 10, Peter had kind of got confronted with this before, right? This is one of the things, right? You, have a, uh, you struggle with sin, and then you repent, and you have some growth, and sometimes you fall back into it, right? That's what Peter is doing here. And so back in chapter 10 of Acts, he's confronted with this, remember this um, kind of strange vision in our mind, right? It was a blanket, like a picnic blanket, and it was full of like bacon and pork chops, right? It was like all the different uh, forbidden foods of the Jewish people to eat, and God told Peter, rise, kill, and eat, right? Go, go, go get some bacon. And Peter's like, I can't do that. I'm Jewish. I can't. And remember, he, he learned that, okay, all these foods are clean now. It's okay for me to eat these with the idea being that it's okay to associate with people. That was the whole, uh, whole uh, connection there. Matter of fact, um, Acts 10, 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand in light of that vision that God shows no partiality. In other words, that God could accept anyone who came to him by faith, regardless of background, skin color, economic status, or whatever, okay? So Peter had learned this, you know, he had learned this and, and actually pioneered this eating together, and all of a sudden, though, he's drawn away, right? What happened to him? Why did he do this? Let's look at that, number two, the heart of what's happening. There's a key word here in verse 12. It says, fearing, fearing the circumcision party, right? Fearing them. So here's Peter, who seemed to have, have changed was living in line with the gospel who cowers in fear once again to people just like he did back at the cross. Remember, he cowered in fear. He, he denied Jesus three times. Um, he has done this before. He's not beyond uh, sin. He's not beyond specifically here favoritism or partiality or racism. Even as a follower of Jesus, even as a pastor, which is what he was, 
um, even as a leader of the early church, still struggled to, to align his heart with the gospel on a daily basis, right? We all have that struggle, aligning ourselves with the gospel on a daily basis. Uh, we need that. And so why is he afraid? Well, uh, verse 14 says it clearly that as Paul confronted him, he didn't believe the gospel. You're like, Peter wasn't a Christian? Oh, no, he was. <laughs> but the struggle is every day to get back up. I remember Martin Luther, 400 plus years ago, said that uh, religion is the deep default of the human heart. You know, this is way before computers, but if you reset a computer, right, it goes back to the manufacturer setting or your phone, right? Put it back to the original settings. He's like, every day we wake up, our heart, like, reverts back to a works-based life or works-based righteousness, right? I'm good if I do the right things. And God loves me if I do the right things, if I keep these rules. Is that every day we gotta go back to go, no, it's based on grace, it's based on grace. I'm not earning favor with God here, right? I'm not earning favor, I'm, I'm, I'm in grace. So that always happens. So this is what Peter's struggling with. And so Peter didn't believe Jesus was enough at this moment in time. He needed a, a good reputation. He needed people to, uh, to like him. He needed some, some data boys, right? He needed some, some affirmation from this Jewish crowd that he wanted, he wanted the affirmation of this group. He, he felt, felt them to be important, which led him to thus exclude, disregard, and minimize other people, right? That's why I said I don't think it was deliberate. He wasn't trying to do that, but because he got his heart got absorbed with fear and he wanted the approval of these people, it led to the sins that he committed, okay? And I love that Paul doesn't say to Peter, this is really good. Paul doesn't say to Peter here, you know what, Peter? You're breaking the rules, man, Let's get back in the game, right? He doesn't say that. Uh, he didn't pull the, hey, Peter, no racism card here. You can't be doing that. No partiality, uh, Peter. Uh, just get in line now. Get back over, get your lunch, get your tray, get back over at that table right now, right? He, he doesn't do that. Now, he could have, and it wouldn't have been wrong to do that, but he didn't do that. What did he do? He said, Peter, you're not believing the gospel. You're, you're totally missing it right now. Um, and this is that we find the gospel governs not just our beliefs, but our actions, we can discover if we truly believe the gospel on a daily basis by how we act, especially how we treat people, how we see people. Uh, James 2, verse 19, James would say, you believe that God is one, you do well. In other words, that's good theology, okay, that's good. Even the demons believe and shudder. They have an emotional response, at least. Right? They, have a, they, they believe, they have a theological, they're not Christians. They understand theologically the, the ideas, but they don't believe it in a way that changes their actions. Therefore, they don't really believe it. Okay, so what we're talking about here. Some of us say we believe the gospel, but you know, we still break people into deserving and undeserving categories, right? We still see people as better than us and so, or maybe worse than us. We size people up, right? And we don't believe the gospel in that way because there's no sizing up people in the, in, in the gospel because we're all sinners. Just as deserving of grace, uh, undeserving of grace as everybody else. So we find here, it's a really important point for the rest of our lives here, is that, is that every sin we commit comes back to the fact, at its core, that we don't believe the gospel, that we're not satisfied with Jesus. We are seeking to find something more, or that Jesus plus something equals everything. Um, his work on the cross to make us acceptable to God is just not enough. We need something else. And we've labored really hard here to preach the gospel Sunday after Sunday after Sunday because it's not just for the unbelieving person who doesn't know Jesus yet, it's for the person who does know Jesus, right? It's not just getting saved over and over again. It's again, we gotta line our heart back with who am I, who is God, how am I into relationship with God, and why, how does that change how I live, right? So do you realize um, that, that the reason, you take the Ten Commandments, for example, right? Ten of them. The reason we break commandment two through 10, right, is because we break number one first. What's number one? You shall have no other God before me. You break that one, that leads to all the rest. No one commits adultery without, without first having some other God before, before Jesus. No one steals without having some other God. No one lies without having some other God before them. That that's number one for a reason, okay, because it drives all the rest of, of the, of the uh, behavior after that. So... So we find here, Peter could articulate uh, very clearly, probably, that he was justified by faith alone. But he lived in this moment like he was justified by men, justified by the opinions of others. Uh, he was more worried about what they thought of him than what God thought of him in the gospel. And so again, I ask the question, what in the world was he afraid of? Well, maybe, maybe there's lots of ideas. that give specifically what he was afraid of, but there could be a couple here. Maybe he was afraid of conflict. This is sometimes a driving motivation, right, for people. 
afraid of conflict. The people from this Jerusalem church were going to, maybe they were going to cause a scene, right? Maybe they were going to cause a scene. It's going to get very awkward here. Peter could be thinking, well, maybe if we can just avoid a scene, if I get my tray and I take it over to their table and I eat with them, then they'll be satisfied that I'm not buddy-buddy with the Gentile Christians here in Antioch, right? That could have been what was happening. Paul calls that fearful behavior hypocrisy here and says it's not in step with the gospel. Peter was more concerned about his own comfort than he was about Jesus. Maybe Peter was afraid that um, his convictions maybe weren't well-founded, and maybe the people from Jerusalem might get the best of him in an argument over the, the law, the Mosaic law. He didn't, he didn't want to look like a fool before the Gentile Christians, so he removed himself, maybe. Maybe that's what was happening. He was more concerned about his own maybe convictions than he was about Jesus. Maybe Peter was afraid of being a, a Paul groupie, very possible. Uh, he, you can hear people from Jerusalem saying, you know, to Peter, like, what a, what a wimp, right? As soon as you leave your cozy hometown of Jerusalem, you start copying the compromiser Paul. Remember, some people didn't like Paul. Uh, everybody copies Paul, Paul the big shot. Not even Peter can stand up to the great Paul, right? I mean, it could have been, that could have been happening, right? Uh, in, that, in that case, Peter was more concerned about his own reputation than he was about Jesus. Again, believe, Peter believed he was justified by faith in Jesus, but he was living like he believed he was justified by the opinions of people. And thus, because we seek this self-justification most days of our lives, lives, we devise ways to feel superior to others because we have to, right? I, I gotta be better than someone else. If my identity is not in Christ, then I've gotta base my identity off someone else's opinion of me or my opinion of them. And so see, we, this, is how we start, this is how we start breaking apart. This is how we start judging people because uh, we don't really believe we're justified by faith alone. So how do, we, how do we do that today? Let me give you a couple examples, some in the text, some we can apply out of this. Uh, one is, is going on here, is kind of, we can have racial superiority. This is what specifically is going on in this text. These Jewish Christians are seeing themselves as superior to the Gentile Christians because of their, maybe we call it their Jewishness, right? Um, they, were, they have an inherent in with God because of their Jewishness. Um, the Jewish religious people argued this case with Jesus. Remember that in John, the Gospel of John, they were called, they were, we're Abraham's children, remember? Like, we belong to Abraham. This is the, we, we have a level up on everybody else because we are connected to this line of people um, that God favored and, and loves more. And matter of fact, in John uh, chapter 4, the disciples would be completely shocked at Jesus. They'd show up here in Samaria, Samaria and he's sitting by a well there with a woman talking to her. And they were really, this was unheard of for a Jewish man to do. In the temple, uh, the, the Jewish temple that created, there was even a wall and a barrier that kept anybody Gentile from even coming inside of a certain area. And if they did, they would be warded off or killed on the spot. And while it would be easy for us to say today that, we're, that we were guilty maybe of some of these things some 60 years ago, but we aren't like that anymore, it would be a mistake. Racial superiority can show up in most areas of our life. It can show up in a lot of areas. It can show up in, in where we choose to live. It can, sh it can show up in who we choose to associate with. It can, it can show up in who we choose to make our friends. It can, it can show up in who fills our church buildings and who fills our communities to where we educate our kids. It can be all kinds of issues can be showing that without even recognizing it. All right? what we do this also in how we profile people. We feel superior to a race of people based on um, what we feel but we do better than they do. Or we feel fe fe fearful uh, to a race of people based on how we feel inferior to them. Instead of noticing, talking about grace uh, of God and people, we talk about what's wrong with them. We lump them into racial groups or groups of people. In doing so, seeking to elevate ourselves above them to gain some kind of justification. Now, I'm not advocating uh, colorblindness or whatever labels get thrown out there. Um, that's Pre-unbiblical, by the way. God delights in, in the races of our world. Go read Revelation 5. In the end, you'll see people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, right, uh, in heaven. A deliberate act of God uh, electing people from every race. We should notice the grace of God in people, um, and that's important, right? I remember when my kids were, were really little, and we were talking about race when they were little, living in Los Angeles um, out there, and, and I, asked, I remember I asked them a question, the four of them. I said, why do you think God created people of different Skin colors, like, why do you think he did that? And they all got together in his little, little kids' minds, and they came up with a proposition. They said, Dad, we think God made people of different color of skin so that God could teach people their colors. I said, okay, that's a fair, very possible. <laughs> that's very possible, um, right? I mean, but that's, we have to remember there's only two kinds of people 
in the world. They're sinners, sinners saved by grace, transformed by grace. And that's it. That's why Galatians, Paul wrote later on here in chapter 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, male or female, for all are one in Christ. There's no distinctive barriers between those groups. They are all seen as equal before God's eyes. Number two, it can be also another area of superiority or favoritism can be economic, right? This is not as explicit in the text as it is in other places. For example, let me read uh, this in James chapter 2, talks about this, and you guys are doing this uh, on Bible study on Sunday nights. James 2 says this, my brothers, show no partiality, there's our word, as you hold uh, the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing come, also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit by my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves, become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved. He says, brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point is accountable for all of it. In this context, we find Christians who are quite poor in this area where James is writing. And their temptation was when a person of means would show up at the door, right, they treated them with greater warmth than they would the people uh, who they deemed to be lesser, right, when they show up. And we can see this, economic superiority, and again, same questions, same places before, where we choose to live, who we choose to associate with, who we make our closest friends, who fills our church buildings, who where we educate our kids, right? All those questions can, be, can come down to an assessment of, am I, am I just doing this based on just, I feel superior to others? You know, we could do that in the church, you know? Um, when a person shows up at, at, the, at your door at home or at church uh, or at your job or whatever else, um, looking like they've been beaten down by life maybe, looking like they don't quite fit whatever group that you're in, do you run to them with the same joy, the same enthusiasm as you do to someone who looks like they do fit into the group that you're in, right? Do you befriend people because of what you will gain in that relationship, connections to be made, um, or do you do so for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of nothing in return, right? These are questions we have to ask ourselves. Number three, another one that shows up, it could be cultural superiority. This kind of favoritism can be this way. This is also seen in our text. Race and culture were very similar, very close, not far removed from each other. For example, today we can say working class Christians may have a distaste for Christians from wealthier or more socially refined backgrounds or whatever, or vice versa, right? Judges go both, both ways. Christians from one political persuasion can be upset by the presence of other, someone who believes in Jesus has a different political perspective, right? Socially polished Christians can feel uncomfortable around believers who are maybe socially awkward or marginal, vice versa. We do this with how we dress. We tend to respect, uh, maybe have more respect for a person if they dress like we do, less if they don't. We do this not just with clothing, we do it with all kinds of areas uh, all the time. Um, yeah, Sadie and I, I was, Sadie and I were at a concert last night, and um, it, it's, it's really hard not to judge people. I'll tell you what, you're sitting there, and you're like watching, you're like, you would judge how people dance, right? You know, some lady's up there, she's doing like the, this thing, and jazz hands, you're like, what? it's a Maroon 5 concert, what, where'd the jazz hands come from? I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. Um, you know, I'm like, sorry, Sadie, I'm totally judging this person right now. Uh, you know, I mean, you just do this. It's not like I have better dance moves, Mine are probably worse than that. Um, but anyway... But we do this, right? We, you know, single people get, don't like married people sometimes. Married people with kids don't like married people with no kids, right? They tend to like, why don't you have kids yet? You know, kind of judging. Um, White-collar people don't like blue-collar people. Mac people don't like PC people, right? Conservatives don't like liberals. Fox News watchers don't like CNN watchers. Bike riders don't like car drivers. CrossFit people don't like non-CrossFit people. Vegan people don't like carnivorous people, right? Chris Stapleton people don't like Justin Bieber people. I mean, this happens, all the time. I mean, it's just break categories. All, I mean, we don't even think it. We just, we just do it, right? And we do it by how we, okay, you know what this is like, right? You drive and you're like, oh, you know that, that kind of like sigh that you make at people? Oh, total judgment. You know you're doing it, right? Um, you don't have to say anything. It just happens. You, you sense the sigh. You're like, oh, I just did it again. I did it again. We do this with personalities too, right? Whether you do the whole disc profile or Enneagram, whatever profile personality things you take, Right? You're like, I am warm and relational. Others are not warm and relational like me. Right? 
Other people are like, well, I get the job done. Well, these people spend too much time talking to people about their feelings, right? They need to, you need to get the job done like I do, that kind of thing. Right? I make quick decisions. This person has to think over everything and assess everything and analyze everything. Like, just need to make the decision. Right? I mean, we, we just judge each other based on that. We may respond to all of this as Peter did. We will sit by those other people, maybe, in church, but we're, we're not going to eat with them. We're not going to get too close to them. In other words, we, we don't really want to become friends with them. We won't socialize with them, share our lives with them, our homes with them, our things with them. We will keep relationships formal and see them at official church meetings only, but we're not going to go too close. I, I got to accept them. I mean, they're a church, and I get it, but I'm not going beyond that. This, of course, becomes a serious problem. It stems from a general feeling of superiority. Our hearts, without the gospel, have to manufacture some sort of self-value by comparing our group, whatever that group is, with other groups. If the gospel tells us we're all unclean without Christ and all clean in him, Right? When you use your race or your culture to feel superior or righteous, you are saying that Jesus, again, is not enough. You need Jesus plus your cultural ideals. You need Jesus plus your cultural restraints. And you're forgetting that you're saved by grace alone. Listen, we'll never change until we see that in doing these things, we are turning from the love of Jesus in the gospel, and we're trying to replace him or add to him. The core of our problems, again, of our sin is not believing the gospel, not just disobeying the rules. Um, look at number, another one, number four. Moral superiority is another one, is a big one. Uh, most of us are guilty of this one, right? Let me ask you um, something. Why, why are you, ever thought about this, why are you a Christian your neighbor is not? Why? Is it because you are smarter than they are? Maybe more in tune with spiritual things and they are not? Maybe you put yourself in a good position to hear the gospel. Again, we're saved by grace alone. If that is true, then why do maybe you shun unbelievers around you? Who do you bring to your table? Who are you inviting into your life? Are you insulating yourselves against the world into a Christian bubble? These are all things that we can do is exactly what Peter did. Some of us may say we believe we're not superior to those without Jesus, but sometimes our actions speak louder than the words, right? By, by based on who we actually spend time with. Do you even have unbelievers at your table? Do you even know unbelievers? I would remind you that we were here, remember, and we were called Christians, little Christ. Jesus was called a friend of what? Sinners. <laughs> that was his reputation. That should also be our reputation. Listen, and let me get personal with this one and share my own kind of uh, faults on this one and my hopeful, hopefully growth, like Peter, can fall right back into it, I know. But I remember when I moved from Mobile, Alabama, out to L.A. to plant a church, and we're living in, in Los Angeles, I remember I had, uh, I had neighbors, so I'll just give you an example of this. Um, pretty embarrassed to share the story now, um, but I was working through things at the time. Um, but I had, I had two guys. They were my neighbors, right? And they had a daughter, Sophia. And um, it's crazy, again, to think uh, we had a hard time uh, talking about this, Sarah and I, about this. Again, recovering Pharisees, recovering older brothers from the prodigal story Jesus gave. But we asked ourselves, could we, <clears throat> almost makes me cry to think about it, could, could we have them at our table? Is that okay to invite them over? Is it okay? They, Sarah, they invited us over to their pool to swim with our kids. Is that, is that okay to do? Like, I had to ask myself those questions. And I'm embarrassed to even say I have to ask them, but I did because I was trying to figure out, is it okay, Jesus, that I, they're different from me? We don't believe the same thing, right? I mean, am I endorsing their behavior by going to their house? I mean, I, I cringe at the fact that I had to ask that question, but I did, Right? I mean, this is how the gospel has to affect how we see and treat different people. I mean, embarrassed to even say I asked those questions, but it was part of God killing partiality and all those things in my heart. Learn to live on mission like Jesus did and not just preach the gospel to people, but actually befriend them. <laughs> Go to where they are. <laughs> um, and trust me, I tried all kinds of religious jargon to justify my lack of involvement or my lack of actually going over to their house. Right? I had all kinds of verses I tried to throw at myself to say I was justified in not doing it. But listen, like, like Peter, uh, like Barnabas in our story, you start engaging with unbelievers as a new Christian. Why? Because that's all you know. Right? You, you come to Jesus, all you know is unbelievers around you. You're, like that, you're surrounded by them. You're like, yeah, I'm, I mean, you're on mission. Like You're engaging people. And slowly, just like Peter and Barnabas, you, kinda, you get into the church. You, you make Christian friends, which is good. Like That's a good thing. But slowly but surely, you start to, you don't know anymore unbelievers, right? You isolate yourself from them. Again, not deliberately, not like you had a mission to do that. It just happens. And we start looking around going like, wait a minute, I don't even, I don't even know anybody that doesn't know Jesus. Like That's a problem. 
I need to, I need to turn that around, right? I need to, I need to find ways to engage. Um, we grow partial then. We stop hanging out with unbelievers. We start justifying it um, by justifying the fact that we're just, we don't have time for them, right? But eventually, it moves to that feeling that somehow they're defiling to us, uh, that after all, we're supposed to be holy people, right? We, gotta, we can't be too close to them. But the gospel tears this down. To act this way is to be partial and to be living in sin. The gospel breaks down all of those barriers, and it not only makes eating with those different from you acceptable, it promotes it. We're just one beggar telling another beggar where we found the bread, right? We're nothing special. We're nothing better than them. Um, and if you're relying on your moral record, your uprightness, your, 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 your reputation uh, in that way, um, to find your significance, your identity, your value, then you're, you're not just denying the gospel. You're going to be miserable in that. You know why? Because if the gospel is not the motivating factor of your heart and how you see and view people, then that will either lead to self-hatred because you can't live up to the standards in which you have put up there, or self-inflation because you think you have met the standards that you've put up there. Whether, again, whether the moralist ends up smug and superior or crushed and guilty depends on how high the standards are they set for themselves and others, right? Um, it's no transforming power in that one. At the same time, go to the other end of the spectrum, the same goes for, for relativists, right, who think that they're better than others because, you know, I'm just so tolerant. I accept everybody, so I'm better. You see, it's the same, it's the same heart motivation. You guys, are, you don't accept everybody, so you're less than. You see, it's the same, same perspective. We're no different uh, in that case than the moralist is. Both people are seeking to avoid Jesus as Savior and keep control of their lives. Both are based on a distorted view of the real God. One loses sight of the holiness of God, one loses sight of the love of God, right? It's the same thing. As a Christian, you realize that your best deeds and your sins have been a way of avoiding Jesus as Savior. To get the gospel is to turn from self-justification to rely on Jesus' record for relationship with God. You see, the irreligious person doesn't repent at all. The righteous religious person repents of sins. But a Christian, they repent of their righteousness as well. They repent of even the things they try to do right to be right with God, right? That's, a whole, that's when you know you're getting the gospel. You're like, yeah, I understand. I've done all these things that are good, but I did them all with the motivation of actually looking better than someone else, getting favor with someone else, and especially with God. Last, uh, number three. Not lastly. Sorry, it's going to be a little long this morning. It's, We'll go quicker here. Number three, the approach. We gotta get to the approach here. I don't have a lot of sermons left, so you're gonna have to just live with me, all right? Um, it says that uh, in our text here in verse 11 that Paul confronted Peter to his face and he did so in public. Paul basically says there's no time to, uh, for words here or theological debate in private. This is a public offense. It deserves a public rebuke. Um, he had even led, it says here, Barnabas astray and not believe in the gospel, as, rest, as well as other Christians in that church as well. And Paul uses a military term. He says he confronts him to his face. He uses that same word in Ephesians 6 to speak of the spiritual warfare, to stand against, you, know, you take your stand. Same word used here in this context. Can you imagine this scene? I would love to have been a fly on a wall <laughs> for this one. Um, this is a fight between two pastors of the church in front of the congregation, basically, is what's happening. Can you imagine? That, that's interesting. It was so dramatic, matter of fact, as I read some church history on this, matter of fact, it was so dramatic that some early church pastors, like later on, you know, a couple hundred years later, would say that they actually would try to change this a little bit and say, well, they didn't really disagree. So another one said that uh, it was actually a different Peter. It's not the same Peter that is in the Gospels. It's a different Peter that did this, because the Peter we know wouldn't have done this. And my favorite one, one said, one said Peter was actually faking it, uh, to allow Paul to show some authority in the church because they didn't respect him enough. So he kind of looked like he went, you know, folded so that P Paul could have his moment and people be like, oh, Paul is, he does have authority. I mean, it's crazy how people make up stuff. But, um, but how, could, how could Paul do such a thing? How could he confront him like this, right? Uh, some of us take pride in the fact that we are not a partial person, that we are accepting people and Paul's action make us uncomfortable. You're like, that's really not, that's harsh. Like, that, you should do that in private. But the reality is, is that we're just as much in sin because sometimes we, we won't say anything. We still value our reputation, same heart motivation. We, we want our reputation, we want our comfort, we want our ease. I don't want to ruffle any feathers, so I'm not going to say anything. It's the same, it's the same heart motivation as the other. Um, Paul was believing the gospel to do this. He was not afraid of what any of these groups of people thought of him. He had Jesus, it's all he needed. He, and, and also, he loved Peter here, right? He loved Peter so much that he actually was willing to step into his kitchen, say some things that were uncomfortable, say some things that maybe people wouldn't like that he would say, and he would maybe lose some friends in the process, but he did it because he loved him. 
And this is what we confront in each other, right? He confronted him for not believing the gospel. So many Christians, we confront one another, get in each other's kitchen, but we just basically say, knock it off. Knock it off. Stop that. Don't do it. But we fail to get to the heart of the matter, right? To do so is to, to practice kind of moralism and not true repentance. And doing so is not appealing to the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. I'm not appealing to the justification by faith. I'm not appealing to the value and the beauty uh, and the worth of Jesus, but my own righteousness or lack thereof. We need to care enough for each other to confront each other. And Galatians is going to deal with this. The book is going to continue to talk about this later on. Um, that uh, we need to do that with those when we're, we're not walking in step with the gospel. Again, I, I remember this one time, um, I'm grateful to have friends that were willing to do this, right? Those are people you stick with. And I had a buddy of mine, uh, Mike Brown's his name, was just visiting back when I was in L.A. And uh, I remember one day we were having a meeting, the two of us, and we were both kind of heads of this network we were doing. And, um, and we had other guys, kind of church planters and pastors coming into town and wanted to meet. And we were talking, and they were asking me some questions, and I was giving them kind of my story and different things. And Mike knew me well enough to know half the things I was saying I was inflating, <laughs> I was making things up a little bit. I was making myself look better than I really was kind of thing. And when, the, when it was all over, the meeting, he calls me on the phone and goes, Chris, what, the, what was that? What, what were you doing? You, you were not believing the gospel. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, you totally were inflating things. Like you were making yourself sound important. Like you were not believing. The, and that's how he confronted me. It wasn't, you didn't knock that off. Stop, you know, embellishing facts kind of thing. Stop making yourself look important. He, he went right after, you're not believing Jesus is enough for you. And I'm like, Mike, thank you. <laughs> I, I needed that. Like, I needed to hear that. Um, it was important. So when we use God's grace as a motivator, we can criticize sharply and directly, but the other person will generally be able to perceive that we are nonetheless for them and not against them, right? It's no wonder Paul was winsome in this. You say, how, how do you know Paul was winsome in this? Let me read for you what Peter would say later. Peter would write uh, two letters called 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Let me read 2 Peter 1 and a couple of verses, and see if you hear what Paul told him. <laughs> For this reason, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. Okay, so he's talking about character, like continue to grow in character. And he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. Whoever lacks these qualities, right, if this character, if you don't have this brotherly affection with love, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Do you hear that? That's, ex that's the gospel. He, he's reiterating what Paul confronted him on in the middle of church, basically, publicly. Hey, you're not walking in line with the gospel. Peter remembered that. He wrote it down. He's like, yeah, if you're not building in character and if you're judging people and you're not actually having brotherly affection for some other people and you're actually standing against them, he says here, you've forgotten that you were cleansed. You forgot, you forgot, you forgot the gospel. Isn't that cool? Like, he remembers that. That's how impactful Paul was in this situation. Lastly, number four, hope. Last two verses. It says, verse 14, sorry, last three here. It says, when they saw their conduct, not in step with the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, before them all, so I did it publicly, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So here we have the heart of the gospel. For Paul, Paul is, the heart of the gospel here is he goes on to talk about, um, in verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in order to be justified by faith, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one is justified. This is the heart of the gospel for, for Paul. Justification by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. You say, what is justification? Justification is, is what a judge does in a courtroom, okay? It's a declaration that a defendant is found innocent because there's real innocence, right? A defendant is declared to be just because they are found to be actually just, right? Justification is where true justice is served. The innocent are acquitted, the guilty are condemned. My friends, God is a just God. He will punish sin. And we all stand guilty as charged for not, not just breaking the rules, but for valuing and treasuring and rejoicing in the creation rather than the creator. We are rightly condemned. But God is also merciful. For as we stand condemned in this courtroom, the door swings open and in walks Jesus. And, no, and note this. This is really important. He does not plead your innocence. <laughs> He's not there as a lawyer for you to say, there really are you know, Father, they really are good. I mean, I know it doesn't look like it. They had some bumps in the road. But overall, they were really good people, right? That's not what Jesus does. 
He doesn't come in and try to spin your character either or spin your life and be like, well, if you look at it from this angle, like they really were good people and not so bad because look at this, what they did. He doesn't do that either. He doesn't look for a technicality to get your case thrown out in the Supreme Court of God here. (laughs) Doesn't do that either. Rather, he pleads his own blood. He pleads his own righteousness. To try to plead your case, to try to plead your own good works is what Martin Luther would call trying to placate God with sins. Like, it's not gonna happen. So Jesus removes you, takes the condemnation you deserve by going to the cross and dying for your sin. And at the cross, we see the justice of God being satisfied with Jesus' life, and we see the mercy of God in turning to pardon you of your sin when you turn to faith in Jesus. And the best part about this, another area of theology here, God is what we call immutable. Maybe that be a word you're familiar with. It basically means he doesn't change. He doesn't change. He's consistent. He's not gonna change his mind on the judgment what Christ has done is fulfilled, and he's not going to change it. That's why Hebrews 13, 8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This means that God will judge you. But if you are his, he will do so in Christ. And he will not change his mind, no matter how hard you try to run away from him. God is not partial, my friends. He says that very clearly here. He won't walk away from the table. He won't leave you as Peter left these others. He won't close his eyes when he looks at you because you are in Christ. That's why he would say things like this. Revelation, the last book of the Bible, verse three, chapter three, verse 20. Behold, Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. I'll come sit at the table. You, 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 wanna, you wanna come to me? I'll, I'll come in. Uh, at the end of the book, Revelation 19, nine, the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, these are the true words of God. God invites us in, into relationship with him. So as we go to communion, we take the opportunity to take, take inventory. We do this as a church, have some quiet time to stand bef- kind of before God and be like, God, do I have, is, is, there a, is there a log in my own eye here? Before you think about the specks in others' eyes, okay? This is one of those that affects, we all have a log in our eye here. God, am, am, I, am, I, being, am I being, am I distinguishing people here? Am I being, am I being in any of these cases here uh, that is applied here in, in the book of Galatians or any area of superiority I feel to other people? God, help me to, to see the gospel and see grace, right? This is our opportunity to reflect that. So as so we do that, there's juice and there's bread. In a moment, when you're ready, if you're a follower of Jesus, you may take that. It's to remember the body and blood of Jesus broken and poured out for us. If you're not a Christian, communion's not for you, but we'd love to answer your questions and talk to you more about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to talk about the subject and the text. Um, God, it's powerful to read and, and actually quite humbling to read a story like this, I love, that's what makes the Bible so real, because no human being is going to write this stuff, they're going to make themselves look better, and this just looks really bad. <laughs> this looks really bad for Peter. Um, and yet, God, um, I love it, he, he learned, I love how he wrote in Second Peter, how he remembered that, God, if you're going to grow in character, if you're going to grow in love for people, if you're going to have that brotherly affection for others, especially those different from you, then you got to remember that you're forgiven. you got to remember that you've been cleansed of your former sins. Because God, only grace, only the grace of God found in Christ is what's gonna change our hearts and help us see people as you see them and help us be a friend of sinners as Jesus you were and reach people that don't know you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.